Welcome to McClatchy's Beyond the Bubble podcast, where every week we will take you inside the race for the White House in a way only McClatchy's 30s newsrooms can by talking about how the election is playing out on the ground in states that will matter. I, of course, am Alex Rorty, a political correspondent at McClatchy. And today I am joined by Adam Walner, McClatchy's politics editor and the last man on earth who thinks Eric Bledsoe can be the third best player on an NBA championship team. Adam, such a pleasure to have you back. I have a lot of complicated feelings about Eric Bledsoe that I'm not even going to begin to to go into because that would take up the entirety of this podcast episode. So I will just say, Alex, it's a pleasure to be here as always. And we're, of course, joined by Emily Cadet, politics reporter extraordinaire who runs our outstanding new politics newsletter and revealed last week that she's actually a Sacramento Kings fan. Emily, welcome. Thanks for having me. Sort of more of a lapsed Kings fan. (laughs) I have to be perfectly honest, but, you know, I'll root for them over anyone else. Okay. Okay. Interesting. Um, Most importantly, make sure to sign up for that. Yes. Most importantly. Yeah. That's that's the real news there, folks. That's that's the lead. Okay. So this week we are going to talk about the late entrances, the late, unexpected, maybe even shocking entrances of Michael Bloomberg and Deval Patrick into the Democratic presidential primary. And we're also going to talk about Bernie Sanders and the alleged media blackout, a discussion that has really been ongoing for several months now in the Democratic primary. Three card-carrying members of the corporate media are going to discuss what exactly is at the bottom of that. But first, but first, going to lead with the news, folks. Uh, Impeachment hearings were this week. Um, Obviously, something that uh, consumed Washington, the first public hearings uh, about this, about what is, of course, a, a pivotal moment, as all impeachment proceedings are in American history, uh, the impeachment inquiry against President Trump. And the part we want to talk about, we're not going to dive into some of the details about the case that Democrats are building or Republicans are rebutting. What we want to talk about, because, of course, this is a show focused on the presidential primary, is the disconnect, the huge disconnect between the the sort of black hole in Washington, everything gets sucked into uh, the impeachment inquiry, and the fact that it doesn't appear at all on the campaign trail. Nobody is talking about impeachment no. um, in the Democratic presidential primary. And so, Emily, the, the, the question is to you, why is that? <laughs> help, help, help us understand, help the listeners understand, why is there this enormous disconnect? Well, I think there's a couple reasons. I mean, first off, the people on the campaign trail, the candidates and the folks they're talking to are thousands of miles away for the most part from Washington, D.C. and and aren't maybe hanging on every word or every piece of testimony or transcript that gets released um, in this impeachment inquiry. Um, And at this point, it's really centered on the House. And we don't have any House members, I don't think, except maybe John Delaney, but he's no, is no, he still no, in the house? No. Yes. Yes. Yeah. No. Yes. Well, for, yeah. Former House member. No. But yeah. None of the top tier candidates running for president at this point. Right. Are, are involved really, are in involved. this impeachment the, inquiry. The Tulsi right. Fans are going to be a little upset. Oh, with sorry. Us. No. Yeah. She, yeah. But she's not on <laughs> the relevant FYI. committees, right? Yeah. So <laughs> I would say that there's there's a distance between what's happening in Washington and and what average people are thinking and caring mm-hmm. about every day, and certainly even amongst the the candidates running for president who are in Congress, they're in the Senate. So while they may have a role to play down the road at this point, they are sort of peripheral to the action in Washington. So I I think that impeachment will creep into this race. Uh, Certainly, President Trump talks a lot about it. And depending on how this all plays out, it could be an issue in the general. But right now, with the Democrats, they're all pretty much in agreement at this point in terms of, yes, 
impeachment should go forward. There are very serious questions about what the president did in terms of withholding aid from Ukraine and pressuring the Ukrainian government. Um, but it's not it's not something that's really contrasting between the candidates, and it's certainly not something that I think most average people in in the early states, voting states, are, like, care about. You're saying like there is no difference between Pete Buttigieg and Elizabeth Warren's position on impeachment, right? I mean, not that not in a way that vo- the average voter is go- going to care about. Certainly, so I think that for the most part, they are looking to make their case on other issues. Yeah, at this I, think, point. I think that's one of the biggest factors with that right now is that we're at a stage in the primary, we're only a couple of months out from the Iowa caucuses that, you know, it's all about drawing contrast right now between the candidates. And if everyone's on this largely on the same page about impeachment, you know, why is that something that you would bring up unless you think it can really motivate your base, your voters to, to turn out? And what we've kind of heard time and time again, really, and this even dates back to, you know, to the 2018 midterms when there was the, the Mueller investigation going on. Um, and it, I think it still is true today when we, you know, when we go out on the trail, when our colleagues go on the trail and are talking to, to voters, you know, in, you know, in early voting states in in uh, general election battleground states it's just not top of mind for them i think you know to your point emily this just this still feels like a very dc centric story right you know it's you know extremely it's a, a so lot, uh, extremely and, so and it's you know up until um just this week almost all entirely happening behind closed doors and even with these public hearings i mean you know they're really getting so deep into the weeds i mean it's tough for an average political journalist to keep up with everything that's going on let alone you know a, a voter who's maybe who maybe just you know tunes into as a to, normal to, day job yeah exactly <laughs> Maybe he's only tuning into the evening news or reading the newspaper in the morning, trying to keep up with all this. And 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 you know, above all else, it just isn't impacting their daily lives in the same way that you know they're concerned about healthcare costs, they're concerned about taxes. That's a dynamic Democrats were really able to to use to their advantage in 2018, not focusing on the noise of what's happening with Trump and and in Washington right now. I think impeachment kind of feels like. Um, you know, just sort of like, oh, this is just, you know, another, you know, another day in Washington, D.C., another day of dysfunction. Um, but how is this actually going to, you know, affect my, my day-to-day life? Now, that, that could very well change as, as these proceedings go on. You know, who knows what, what these hearings will bring uh, and what other information will come to light in the coming weeks. But I think right now, this is just so disconnected from, uh, from the lives of the average voters that, you know, if they're not pressing the candidates on it and the candidates don't really see it as something they can use to their benefit, it's just not going to come up on the trail. Yeah, well, there, there are two things that occur to me in this discussion. One, it almost reminds me of climate change um, a little bit in that, well, Emily, you had mentioned, um, you know, there is no conflict there, right? And so you just don't, people just don't talk about it. There is definitely a parallel between that and the candidate's climate change policy and that really everyone is in, in favor of big, bold ideas to try to combat climate change. But the differences aren't so much that you really, that it sparks a lot of debate. Yeah. Uh, really much the to the climate change activists might disagree well, with climate, you. But, well, climate but change activists average, disagree, yeah. right. But mm-hmm. like, and, and they're, uh, safe to say, enormously frustrated with how things have played out because in the debates, there really hasn't been a lot of focus on climate change. Voters say they do care about it. It really yeah. has risen in importance as an issue for Democratic voters, particularly younger voters. But it hasn't manifested itself on the debate stage because there isn't that conflict. And then that that is, you know, it doesn't help delineate the differences between the candidates in the way that Medicare for all does, uh, for, for instance. The other thing that draws out to me, and this is kind of an important thing to understand about the Democratic primary. And Adam, you were talking about it just now. You know, there is a sense among a lot of Democratic primary voters that as bad as Trump is in their view, there are bigger problems afoot in America. And then that's where they always want to see that's where they see, want to see the candidates focus at. You know, the problem is um, a lack of health care for people. That extends, you know, that certainly long predates President Trump. 
Um, you know, it's it's student loan debt. Um, it's it's college affordability. It's housing affordability. That these problems. There's always been this divide in the Democratic Party. Um, really, that has existed since uh, Donald Trump took office. That just a big part of the electorate. That's look. They they despise Donald Trump, but they really do see these other longer systemic problems as maybe a bigger issue, and they want to see the candidates address that. It's something why you see a group like Priorities USA, a Democratic super PAC, you know, when they try to motivate voters um, in some of the, the tests that they've done before the presidential election, the message that usually gets them out is the Democratic candidate X is going to improve education, right? Like they, they have found and tested that that message actually draws people. So that's why, I, and I think candidates are responding to that dynamic, and they understand that that is a lot of what voters want to hear. And of course, if you're Pete Buttigieg, what the heck do you have to do <laughs> with, with impeachment? Now, uh, we don't want to linger on this topic too long. One thing to keep in mind, though, um, Warner, it seems like uh, the there is a possibility anyway, the Washington Post reported this week, that the impeachment proceedings could extend into January, mm-hmm. of course, in the run-up to the Iowa caucuses, right. Senate Republicans see this as an opportunity to throw a wrench in the presidential primary. That could have now. Now we're talking about something different. We're talking about logistical challenges for the candidates that could have a, a significant impact on the yeah. Race. It could just be a really interesting calculus for Senate Republicans to make, depending on you know where the race stands in January and if this you know this Senate trial actually does get underway. Then, as some people are anticipating, uh, the Washington Post had a story on that um, uh, today, and, and John Cornyn had kind of. An interesting quote where he was like, yeah, you know, I think, you know, Pete Buttigieg and Joe Biden might like it if, you know, all of the, the senators, you know, Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders are back in Washington, uh, you know, have to deal with this this um, Senate uh, impeachment trial. And, and all the senators, you know, who have been asked about this have said that, well, you know, we would certainly take time off the trail and come back to Washington to, to do our duty. But, you know, <laughs> you know, the Senate Republicans will maybe have to decide, you know, you know is this really, you know, are there certain candidates we, we want to help out that we want to hurt? Um, something uh, that, you know, like you said, it just could kind of throw a wrench in everything and just create a very complicated process uh, for voters um, who are trying to figure out who they want to back ahead of ahead of the, the voting in February. I would just add that counter to the conventional wisdom, I don't know that it necessarily hurts the senators who would have to get off the campaign right. trail because they would have this big national spotlight. Mm, I certainly true. think of Kamala Harris and Cory Booker and even Amy Klobuchar, members of the Senate Judiciary Committee, who have gained attention and following after questioning high-profile witnesses. Um, so depending on the optics and the theater, given how national this race already seems, that's, that's a very good point. I, I could see certainly a, a Harris, her breakout moments have been in hearings. And so the opportunity to have that national spotlight could actually yeah. benefit some of them. That's, yeah. that's, that's an excellent point. Let's, let's now turn to two candidates who would not have to worry about participating in impeachment hearings if they do extend into January. Two candidates we didn't think were going to be in this race as of a week ago. Uh, a shocking development, really, just in the, in the last week. Michael Bloomberg, the former mayor of New York City um, and multi-billionaire. And Deval Patrick, the former governor of Massachusetts, both have decided that they're going to enter this presidential race. Michael Bloomberg has even filed to run in uh, Arkansas and Alabama and requested paperwork in Tennessee. Deval Patrick Thursday morning released a, a new video announcing his entrance into the race. And who boy, uh, there is a lot to digest here, Emily. I think the, the bottom line question is this is incredibly late in the process, almost 11 months in for a lot of candidates, um, even years in because some candidates have been preparing for that long. Is there any reason to think that either of them can make a significant dent in this race? I think there's a lot of skepticism at this point. And I would I would just add, I, 
Bloomberg has not officially announced he's running, but he's certainly making all the moves that a candidate mm-hmm. would make. And, you know, as these deadlines are coming up to get on the ballots in states, um, this is basically the drop dead deadline ultimately for candidates if they want to run, unless they're just not going to appear on certain ballots. But um, I think what's going to be really interesting is is this experiment, right? Uh, Donald Trump sort of d- diminished the role of traditional media and used Twitter to talk directly to people in 2016. He kind of broke a lot of the the traditional models for running for president. Um, certainly Michael Bloomberg and Deval Patrick are trying to do the same thing, although I think Bloomberg would do it even more so because it sounds like his intention is to skip the first four early states entirely <laughs> and just go straight allegedly. to the Super Tuesday, Super Tuesday states where uh-huh. his money and his personal wealth would be an even bigger advantage um, because he can just spend – for the type of campaign the that no other way. candidate can in California or Texas or Massachusetts. So um, while I think most people I've talked to are incredibly skeptical, they could actually win the nomination. It certainly could disrupt other candidates' uh, strategies and chances of advancing. So I think it's going to be really interesting to see how this plays out and how it changes calculations for other candidates and potentially going forward what, uh, what candidates do in the future. Walner, why? Why do we think these candidates are getting involved? Polls show that the Democratic rank and file is actually overwhelmingly happy with their field. It is, of course, as we have discussed many times on this podcast already, a very crowded and competitive field. Why? What is the the thinking here? Yeah, I mean, we were talking about Democratic disconnects earlier, and, and this really speaks to you know one of the biggest ones in, in the party right now between a lot of the the elites, the old kind of establishment guard, the big donors, and you know the the, the party's base. Um, as you mentioned, you know, even though it is a very fluid race right now. Uh, there's no clear front runner. Um, you know, voters are still trying to make up their minds on who they want to back. They actually, you know, they are happy with the, the state of the field and they like a lot of these candidates and they're, you know, if anything, they want fewer, not uh, not more of them to kind of help them make up they their They definitely mind. want fewer. Right? <laughs> <laughs> the Democrats want fewer candidates. They want to make their choice easier and have more clarity. We're going in the opposite direction here. But but you have, some, you know, you have these sort of nervous, you know, kind of, you know, you know, establishment donor types who, you know, look at someone like Joe Biden and say, well, he, you know, he's not as strong of a front runner as, as we would like right now. And, and the person who's trying to kind of line himself up in that lane, Pete Buttigieg, you know, we like him, but does he have the experience, you know, you know, does he have what it takes to beat Trump in a general election? So, you know, they kind of start panicking and they start looking for for other options uh, that, you know, that aren't already in, in the race. I mean, this seems like a, a, a up or down vote or a, really just a down vote on Joe Biden, right? I mean, it's, <laughs> it's the way I interpret it. And it has nothing almost to do with his poll numbers as it does his performance, both in debates and on the campaign trail, which I think most Democrats would assess as shaky um, yeah. at, at best. And it is purely his his performance that seems like people like Bloomberg and Patrick think that they need to get in, that they have an opening. Right. And, and which is interesting because, I mean, you know, certainly, you know, if at the beginning of this race, I think a lot of people viewed Biden as, as the overwhelming front runner. You might expect him to be, you know, further ahead in the polls, doing better in, in fundraising. But he still is in, you know, as strong of a position, I'd argue, as really any other candidate in the race right now. You know, sure. he's still he's still right up there with all of the top candidates in Iowa, New Hampshire, still has that that firewall of South Carolina. Um, you know, obviously, you know, we've talked in previous episodes about, you know, what could go wrong for him. But, you know, you know, 
to think that someone can just come in, you know, with three months to go here, you know, they have they have no organization, have haven't laid any of the groundwork um, that candidates have been la- have been laying now for for a year plus, you know, seems you know sort of like a fantasy. Um, you know, I will say, you know, Michael Bloomberg, you know, maybe would have the a better chance than Patrick to have an impact just because of that personal wealth. Um, you know, you know, we talked about. Um, you know, we've talked about Tom Steyer and how he, you know, he was sort of a late entry into this race as well. And he was able to pour in um, close to $50 million of his own mm-hmm. money in the third quarter of, of this year. And what did b- that get b- but where polls? did that get him? It got <laughs> right. him a couple percentage points in the polls, qualified him for a couple Did debates, but that's it. Now, Bloomberg, his net worth is 50 times as much as Tom Steyer. So he could, he, you know. And he has a name, knows? an yeah, established name, I think, in politics because he was the mayor of New yeah. York yeah. City. So, so, so who knows what kind of you know level uh, of of his wealth he's he's willing to put into this race? But if he really thinks he can basically skip the first four states and just come in on Super Tuesday and and sort of uh, vault into the lead, you know, it, it's Good really luck. really difficult to I, see that. Happening. I think it depends too a, a little bit on how the other candidates perform in those early states. If say Joe Biden falters in Iowa and New Hampshire, and you see Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders coming up. Um, then maybe there would be an opportunity or an opening for a more moderate candidate like a Bloomberg or a Patrick to come in and say, well, I'm going to be the savior that Biden cannot be for all these folks who are maybe nervous that Warren and Sanders are too far left to beat Trump. Um, But certainly it reminds me going back to like the 60s when candidates did skip. I mean, didn't Bobby Kennedy skip the first several Primaries. I mean, you have to go back. Primaries like, were, were pretty different. Yeah, then. that's true. <laughs> but it, it, I mean, maybe we're going back to a different time. That's what I'm saying about sort of disrupting the established model. I mean, Julian Castro has already raised questions about why do Iowa and New Hampshire? I mean, that happens every cycle because mm-hmm. candidates aren't happy with the way they're doing in those states. But it also is a valid question. Why do they get to pick? Why do these predominantly white states get to set sort of the the front runner early on for Democrats when it's such a diverse party at this point. I, I, do, I do, you know, I mean, we could talk a lot about that. And I do think in the long term, that's unsustainable for Iowa and New Hampshire uh, because of their their demographic mm-hmm. makeup. That said, you know, like with with both of these candidates, you know, the my question is, what are they going to be able to bring and offer that Cory Booker hasn't? Just as an example, mm-hmm. uh, for the last 10 months, I mean, Booker has been um, diligently, relentlessly campaigning. He actually gets good marks in both debates and when he campaigns. Um, I think someone wrote once, he's everyone's third choice in this field. And and he has the, the great profile to be president, a former mayor who is now a senator. Um, he's young and all that said, he's at what, like 3% in the polls? He spent 10 months at this thing and does have an organization that they're counting on to try to pull him across at the end of the finish line. Deval Patrick's not going to have that. Michael Bloomberg if he competes in the early states at all, again, he might not, um, won't have that. And it, so it's just and it's not just Booker. It's it's Kamala Harris. It's it's Amy Klobuchar. You know, all of these candidates have been trying and all of these candidates have talent. You know, I mean, it's not like Deval Patrick is some singular talent. Um, he, of course, had a lot of success in Massachusetts, but that was Massachusetts. Uh, yeah. And, and you look at his, his resume and, and it's, it's easy to see why he, you know, he was floated as a potential presidential candidate in 2016 and was in the early stages of, of 2020. He initially said he wasn't going to run, obviously reverse his decision. I mean, being a, a former governor, he, he's got the business experience. Um, he has ties uh, to to Obama world. He worked um, you know, 
for Bain Capital. So that could be something that's seen as a as a knock against <laughs> yeah, him in a absolutely. Democratic I mean, primary. That, that was uh, Democratic <laughs> Just maybe. Main, main attack <laughs> Just maybe, against, yeah. against Mitt Romney in the 2012 race. But, you know, he, you know, he has the profile of, 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 a, of a presidential candidate. And, you know, maybe if he would have gotten in this thing from the start, who knows where he would be now. But, you know, you brought up the point about people like Booker, Harris, Klobuchar, you know, who could maybe sort of fill that that center left void if people, you know, aren't confident in Biden or Buttigieg, but, you know, don't like Sanders or, or Warren, think they're too far to the left. You know, at least they are are well liked. You know, their favorables are still very good in, in these early state polls, even if their top line numbers aren't that good. And they have an organization in place, whereas Deval Patrick, you know, I don't know how well known he is in, in Iowa. I mean, you know, New Hampshire, a neighboring governor probably has a little bit of name ID there, but, you know, he's going to have a lot of work to do to get his name ID up in these next few months. And people know Michael Bloomberg, but a lot of Democrats don't like him. His poll numbers uh, are terrible. Th- this, so, his favorable numbers are terrible yeah, in so, a Democratic you know, primary. Why, why he may want to skip an early state like Iowa, uh, Monmouth University had a poll out this week. His uh, among likely Iowa Democratic caucus goers, 17 percent favorable, 48 percent unfavorable. Is that good Is that or is that bad? Is that uh, bad? It's, it's not great. It's, it's not, not great, great, I would say. Um, so, yeah, it, it, you know, it's it's interesting that some of these nervous, you know, you know, donor elite types don't, you know, want to get behind, you know, one of the candidates that's already in the race and feel the need to to bring in uh, another well, outside voice. And it's not clear that they can offer um, anything that's, that's any different from what the other candidates are, are already bringing. We, to the I table. mean, we, we talked about it before the podcast, but Deval Patrick's announcement video was, was pretty bland. I mean, it told yeah. his life story. But there really wasn't anything that, that felt anything different than a sort of paint-by-numbers announcement video. I'd point out, too, I mean, just in terms of logistical challenges, how are you going to qualify for debates? Mm-hmm. You know, this has been a slowly building process. Just to qualify for the December debate, not only do you need to hit 4% um, in four different polls of either national or some of the early states, you have to collect 200,000 donors, individual, unique donors. How is Deval Patrick going to do that? I mean, maybe Michael Bloomberg doesn't need the debates because he can spend several billion dollars on air. But what is Deval Patrick's plan to get on the debate stage? And if he doesn't, or is anyone even going to take him seriously? Mm-hmm. Uh, just real quick, do you guys envision any scenario, whether it's Bloomberg or Patrick, where they do have a legitimate opening in this race? To me, there is a small chance that one of them could sweep in if none of the other candidates can distinguish themselves in the first few primaries. And mm-hmm. and I say that only because I think that there are, there are downsides to both of them in terms of how they appeal to the Democrats and the base of the party, but there's such a desperate desire to beat Trump. And if there's a way for Michael Bloomberg in particular to convince people that he alone can beat Trump, that Biden isn't up to the task and these other guys, I mean, we haven't seen any candidate in the field really convince people 100% he or she can beat Trump. And I think that if there's a way for them to do that, people might be willing to overlook some of the other things that they would normally have an issue with in this election. I, I really think Michael Bloomberg in a general election is, is a very tricky proposition, uh, particularly if you always you always want to try to bring be a populist, be some like a breath of fresh air. I'm not sure Michael Bloomberg, the former mayor of New York yeah. City um, in his late 70s at this point is that. Walter, is there any chance for Deval Patrick? Um, I think for either of these guys, I mean, the bottom would really have to fall out on, on Joe mm-hmm. Biden for, for either one of them to, to find some sort of lane in this. And, and as I you know, was saying earlier, it just really hasn't happened yet. I mean, Deval Patrick in a theoretical general election matchup could be kind of interesting against Trump. I, don't, I still don't really see a clear path for him to get through the, this primary. 
Um, but, but you know, I think I think maybe some of the party elites and donors are, are, are underestimating Joe Biden's strength a little bit right now. Yeah, it's, it seems. I, w- I will say that if Pete Buttigieg, who is the, the candidate of the moment right now, surged to the top in that Monmouth poll you mentioned earlier in the Iowa caucus, if people at the end of the, the day, at the end of this process, really aren't willing to pull the lever for a 37-year-old mayor of a midsize or even a small city in Indiana – um, that Deval Patrick could could absorb some of those voters, maybe just because he's fresh and different. But I, you never want to count anyone out, uh, and I'm sure after the discussion, both of them will become the front runners in uh, the <laughs> Democratic presidential primary. But yes, th- there is absolutely a lot of warranted skepticism. Now, speaking of skepticism, and maybe unwarranted skepticism in, in this presidential primary, folks, let's talk about Bernie Sanders. Um, and I think one of the more fascinating ongoing topics of surrounding his candidacy in this presidential primary, the belief both expressly, <laughs> explicitly stated by his campaign many, many times that he is being frozen out um, in the media, that he is not receiving nearly as much attention as he should. Um, and, and of course, a uh, sentiment that is echoed by his supporters. Adam, we got a tip this morning, a hot tip <laughs> on the uh, McClatchy tip line. What, what did they? What did they say? Uh, something along the lines of uh, Bernie Sanders is is a front runner uh, for president. In case you haven't noticed, yes, and I and I think that that uh, I'm assuming tongue in cheek tip. Yes, um, was was really the, the the reflective again of the sentiment that people aren't taking him seriously as someone who could win this presidential primary. Um, and and I'm kind of interested in. And our, again, we are members of the actual corporate media. McClatchy is a corporation. Um, but we are fair and, and, and even-handed in our assessment mm-hmm. of candidates. So I'm curious, Emily, what, what do you – how much merit do you think the, the criticism has um, and, and why or why isn't that? I think there's some merit to that. I mean, I think that journalists and the media in general, they like a fresh new storyline. And because Bernie ran in 2016, and he was for a number of months during that race, the fresh new storyline, Hillary Clinton was the old kind of stale storyline. And Bernie was the new, not that he's young, so I can't really say he's the new kid on the block. He's been around (laughs) forever. But I mean, the the point was nobody expected him to really have the strength or the uh, allure that he did, particularly with young voters. I mean, he attracted a, a movement, essentially, in 2016, and that that attracted a lot of attention in the media. I think now the fact is that he, he is doing the same thing he did in 2016. It's hard to write the same story over and over again. I mean, his stump speech, everything, it's a, a direct echo of, of how mm-hmm. he ran last cycle, um, and from just the mechanics of, of news reporting, you sort of need new, uh, something new to write about. Um, so I think that he, there, there is a fair point that I think his supporters would raise that he's not getting covered as much. He certainly has strength. He has an enduring base and following. He just announced he has 40 staffers now in California. He has, I think he's raised the most money of any of the candidates on the Democratic side mm-hmm. in the race at this point. Um, so he he has a lot of formidable strengths, and and maybe we're we as a collective media aren't taking him as seriously as as we should be. Well, you know, I would point out last week on this very show we actually did discuss Bernie Sanders as a formidable candidate, like you just said, and in many ways the race is developing in a way that seems very beneficial uh, to to Bernie Sanders because in, you know look one of the reasons I would say I would add, and that was an excellent point uh, Emily one of the things I would add on to that. You know, if you look at his candidacy, it was just wasn't as clear where he was going to grow. 
and, and support. Um, and in fact, it was hard to overlook how much support he has lost since 2016. I mean, right. look at a state like New Hampshire, where I think, you know, he won 60 plus percent of the vote in 2016 against Hillary Clinton. Polls show him at, at 20 percent at best in that. that. You know, that's a third of what he got in 2016. And the question is, those supporters, you know, are they going to come back um, after, you know, they know that Bernie Sanders is in the race last time. They voted for him last time. And yet they're still interested in other candidates. Um, and we, and, you, and on top of that, you can say people who voted for Hillary Clinton in 2016 are going to say, by and large, are not going to pull the lever for Bernie Sanders this time around. Um, or at least that would be a difficult uh, constituency for him to break into. So I think there were very legitimate questions of, yes, he has support. Yes, he has this loyal, fervent support and money and resources and a good plan to try to win this thing. It's just how can his coalition grow? And I think that's a little harder to s- suss out as opposed to Joe Biden or even Elizabeth Warren or even Pete Buttigieg right now. Um, but, but Adam, I mean, again, it seems like he really is in in a pretty good place in this thing and probably isn't getting enough attention for being a, a viable uh, contender for this. Yeah, I think it's kind of gone under the radar how good of a, a past couple of weeks he's had since coming back from from that heart attack, which is yes. <laughs> quite quite an accomplishment um, in and of itself that he's back. People on, thought on his candidacy might yeah. have been over. People yeah. thought his candidacy might have been over. And in fact, I had Bernie people, or at least people in the Bernie orbit, telling me they thought it was over at that, that he's a 78-year-old just had a heart attack. There's no way he can come back for them. His campaign seems stronger than ever yeah, right now. Yeah, he had a, you know, had a good uh, de- debate last month, which was kind of his first, um, you know, big moment back on on, on the national stage after uh, his his health scare. Landed some some major endorsements, maybe the biggest of the primary that we've had so far from three members of of the squad, including um, mm-hmm. AOC, uh, who is now you know joining him um, on a lot of stops on the trail. Very he's, active. He's still polling in, in right there in the top tier in both Iowa and New Hampshire with Buttigieg, Warren, Biden, and you know to the point Emily was making sure you know when. Warren is rising and Buttigieg are rising, um, you know, that's is what's going to get covered. Um, but when you have set, such a uh, fractured field right now and, you know, everyone is between, you know, 17 and 22 percent in Iowa, um, having, you know, committed supporters really makes a big difference. So, you know, we've talked um, already, you know, in the last few episodes about how a lot of voters are still making up their minds, willing to to back a different candidate than maybe who they're backing now. But Bernie Sanders has the most committed supporters. So, you know, if, if it still is a four-way race, by the time we get to Iowa and New Hampshire, having that 20, 25 percent is, is going to be critical and, you know, c- could be could be enough uh, t- to even get it into first place. But of course, you know, the question is once the, the field does start to narrow and Sanders is one of those guys or one of those candidates, I should say, in, in the race that is going to be able to stay in it for the long run because of the financial resources he has. Once things start to winnow, will he be able to expand on that base? And that, you know, was his problem in 2016, still will be his problem in 2020. But, you know, he's he's right. You know, he's right in this thing, I think, in in the way he, he's been since, since he entered the race. I mean, you know, one thing that sticks out to me about uh, the coalition he's built, I mean, you know, the knock on him in 16 was that it wasn't, you know, racially diverse. Um, mm-hmm. You really can't say that about the, the coalition he's assembled to this point. Um, you know, really, by, by some metrics, he is actually has the most diverse group of supporters um, in the field. The, the problem for him, though, is that he, there is still this enormous generational gap um, that he attracts a lot of uh, younger African-American and, and Latino voters um, the, the problem is if you get to middle age or the 65 plus and seniors vote, as, as we all know, um, you know, he, he does a lot worse there. Uh, the interesting thing I would say for his candidacy, I know they've been they're very interested, of course, in bringing in new participants to the, the, the process um, and participants who maybe don't show up in the polls. 
for instance. And so maybe the argument would follow that his support is actually greater than the polls indicate uh, at this point. But, you know, I don't think there's any any doubt, Emily, uh, you know, he is is not going away. And, you know, look, again, a month ago, that was seemed like a real open question. Um, and instead, now we have a whole spate of stories about how, you know, he takes long walks and eats more salads <laughs> and is, you know, maybe more invigorated, reinvigorated uh, to embrace the challenge of a, of a political campaign. So he's almost like he's a he's a whole new Bernie uh, at this point. In some ways. Still the same Bernie in a lot of other ways. <laughs> Still the same Bernie in most ways, I think. Okay, let us proceed to what is my favorite segment of the podcast. Let's empty our notebooks telling us and the listeners something we don't know. Walter, you're up first. Well, I want to highlight kind of a big story that's been going on in, in North Carolina this week that will have uh, some, some serious national implications uh, Will Doran at the Raleigh News and Observer has been providing a lot of great coverage on the congressional maps in that state. Um, you know, court decided to, to kind of throw them out at the last minute. So now state lawmakers have to uh, redraw them. And this could be a, a real hindrance for Republicans in their already uphill battle to try and take back the House in 2020. Right now, uh, Republicans control 10 of the 13 House seats in North Carolina. The way that it looks like the map is going, it will probably be reduced to you know eight to five or even seven to six so they're already they're before we even get uh, to the year 2020 they may lose uh, two or three of, of those of those seats uh, state lawmakers are going to be voting on on the new maps this week so I would keep an eye on the news and observer website for updates on that story okay Emily what you got so keeping with the North Carolina theme, I just read a story this morning on the Raleigh News and Observer that I thought was really interesting about North Carolina's voter ID law. And one of the things that they're wrestling with is for students to be able to vote, they need to provide ID. Um, but under the law, those IDs, if they're student or university issued IDs, have to be approved in advance by the State Board of Elections. And it turns out zero of the UNC campuses at this point have had their IDs approved. Um, now, they some of them were rejected. Some of them haven't applied. They have until Friday, I guess, to reapply if they were rejected. But you can imagine a scenario where a whole lot of UNC students are not able to vote if they're, they don't have their student IDs because they are from another state, potentially. Um, and suddenly, they are disenfranchised from the 2020 election. And one would assume that would benefit Republicans over Democrats, since young voters tend to lean more Democratic and and We'll see how competitive North Carolina is in 2020. I assume it's going to be a battleground. But, you know, issues with voting there have continued to be a problem, as Adam alluded to, with their with their redistricting maps. So um, I think that could be an interesting storyline to, to monitor. Yeah, always something interesting going on in North Carolina. <laughs> always something interesting going on in North Carolina. Um, all right. Mine is, speaking of battlegrounds, maybe an unexpected one. Uh, this week, uh, Priorities USA, which is, a, again, a Democratic super PAC, already focused on the general election, uh, listed all the states, uh, as they do semi-frequently for reporters, that they consider battlegrounds. One interesting inclusion in there, Nebraska's 2nd Congressional District. Uh, some of the uh, you who have brushed up on your civics lessons in America will know that Nebraska delineates its electoral votes also by congressional district. Um, and Nebraska, too, is the district that includes the state's largest city. Uh, Omaha. Uh, it is one that Barack Obama won in 2008. It was kind of a feather in the cap for the campaign then. It's kind of drifted back in the obscurity, drifted back into not being 
uh, a battleground into being a solidly Republican uh, state. Of course, as we know and have discussed many times, uh, the suburban vote and the, the urban vote has really shifted to the left. And that possibly puts a place like that in play. Priorities USA, just for the record, uh, in its briefing for reporters this week, it said it was more likely to go Democrat than the states of North Carolina or Arizona wow. right now. Now, it's, of course, I think worth only one electoral vote. Yeah. But we are looking at a potentially a very, very close presidential election. So maybe something that you're going to be hearing about an awful lot between now and next year. OK, uh, before we go, uh, each of you, give me one local reporter uh, our listeners should be following. Uh, well, since we were talking about Deval Patrick and you know a little bit about his play in the New Hampshire primary, I think it's a good time for folks to follow James Pindell, a political reporter for the Boston Globe. Um, you know they, you know he really knows his stuff about both Patrick and the first in the nation primary, so he will be a, a critical follow here in, in the next uh, few months. And of course, New Hampshire is a, a battleground state in the general election. So, you know, just uh, keep following him all the way through November and beyond. A uh, former boss of mine, actually. Oh. Emily? I was going to mention Brian Anderson with the Sacramento Bee. The California State Party Convention is this Saturday in Long Beach, and Brian will be there. And there's going to be a flurry of Democratic candidate activity in and around that area of Southern California. So you can follow him at Brian R. Anderson, and that's Brian with a Y. Uh, mm, always good, always good yeah. to, to specify that. Um, okay, mine is uh, Megan Messerly, uh, reporter for the Nevada Independent. Nevada sometimes gets lost in the uh, early uh, nominating contest. They matter, though, I've, I've heard <laughs> and I've read a few times. Um, and she is there. And of course, all the candidates are actually going to be gathered in Nevada uh, this weekend for an event there um, and would be a great follow. Also an important state to follow between now and uh, their primary sometime in February. Caucuses. The caucuses. caucuses excuse Alex. me. Excuse me. Jeez. It's almost like I don't do this for a living. Um, <laughs> that is Megan Messerly. That is M-E-G-A-N-M-E-S-S-E-R-L-Y on Twitter. Uh, follow her. Okay, that's it for this week. We want to thank our producer, Jeremy Sheeler, and our executive producer, Davin Coburn. And thank you, our listeners. Check us out on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or whatever podcast app you use. And if you like what you're hearing, please leave us a rating or a review. And if you don't, keep it to yourself. No, seriously, keep it to yourself. Talk to you next week.